0: This is Dr. Eric Greenberg on the Dr. Eric Greenberg Show. It is February 16th, 2018, and this is technically the sixth episode in the order in which we are recording this. And I'm here with an old friend and colleague of mine, uh, Father Giovanni Esti. And do you prefer doctor or father?
1: Either way is fine. You know, you can even just call me Giovanni. I'm not used to titles, so yes. Sure,
0: sure. So uh, Giovanni is a Catholic priest. He is also a scholar of New Testament and Christian origins. He and I actually went to school together at Claremont Graduate University. Uh, We've known each other for about 20 years now. We currently work together at uh, one of the universities that I teach at. And um, uh, he's had some amazing experiences in, in his life, uh, as a priest, as a scholar, uh, I, and, and I just I thought he would be the perfect person to have on the show to talk about all sorts of topics uh, pertaining to religion and spirituality, um, the changing church in the world, how it's adapting, how it maybe it's not adapting. Um, so I want this to be a freewheeling and open discussion, and um, feel free to just talk about anything you want to talk about.
1: Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And yes, a lot of uh, our talks have been like, you know, uh, spread throughout these 20 years. And uh, so it's a pleasure. Well, uh, my life really started, you know, in this uh, sort of adventure when I was a little kid back in my town in Italy, town that goes by the name of uh, Visano in the province of uh, Brescia in the northern part. Back in uh, the late sixties, Some uh, priests came to my town and uh, spoke about uh, their lives in Africa. And uh, I was really touched by the adventurous life as well as uh, by the generous life they portrayed. Uh, I was watching uh, TV at that time and followed the adventures of Tarzan. And I felt like, you know, that's my way to embody my hero. But also, I saw the pictures of uh, uh, children like me struggling, suffering, and I really felt they uh, they were looking at me. I had to respond to them. I couldn't turn and say, ask somebody else. So I joined the seminary and uh, I began uh, my training when I was uh, 12 years old. I left my family. And it took me 17 years before I became a priest. And uh, during that time, I uh, learned, uh, I unlearned, in a sense, my own uh, knowledge about uh, faith uh, and uh, the world. And uh, me, who was supposed to go and uh, maybe convert people, I found myself being converted by people.
0: Mm. Now, uh, just to backstep a little bit, You had always told me a story, a charming story, about when you first went off to the seminary. I think, did you say you were about 10 or so? And you said that they had a a, a parade or a festival in the town and they had written on the wall, Giovanni is going to fight the devil. That's how I remembered it. Do you want to narrate that
1: for us? Yes, those were, uh, you know, again, my village, only 1,500 people. And uh, so they were uh, truly uh, cheering uh, up, people who would dare live in the town. Uh, it was for me the first time uh, to take a train uh, and uh, to go away. I remember my mom prepared a meal and everything. The, the, the travel just lasted half an hour <laughs> at the end, <laughs> but it seemed to go into another world. And of course, uh, the people of the town were uh, truly admiring. Uh, what I was doing, uh, and uh, and in many ways I felt I was representing the good spirit of the town. Yes, uh, so yes,
0: that's a beautiful story. And yeah. did I get the thing right about having it printed on the wall? Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> that yes. charmed me to hear. Yes, that.
1: yes, you yeah. know, they w- again, like you know, little events were like big events, and uh, so uh, not everybody in my town were like religious. Few people really went to church. However, there was that natural sense of uh, solidarity with those who struggle, with those who are suffering far away. And uh, so everyone, both like, you know, churchgoers and non-goers, would really like, you know, be there to support someone that represented the value of solidarity abroad. And uh, so I really felt empowered uh, by that. It's
0: fascinating. So... But it took you about 17 years before you finally took your vows?
1: Yes, uh, uh, 17 years before I became a priest. And uh, the last uh, five years were spent in Chicago because part of our training was to learn uh, to live in a different culture. And uh, that was truly like uh, uh, a a profound experience because when uh, I left Italy, I I, I really sort of uh, came with the assumptions that uh, uh, the mission was to make everybody Catholic. Mm. Uh, not to say that other people were bad, but uh, the total, final truth was contained within the Catholic Church. And uh, so uh, I thought uh, that was the mission. And then, you know, I came to the States and I started to have friends who were non-Catholic and uh, they were good people, as good as I was, better probably. And so I started to question myself and say, why should I ask them to be like me? Uh, that is not the point, point. Uh, and I think that was like a, a, a transition that was also uh, present in uh, the church at large, at least like, you know, the group that uh, I was uh, working with, uh, the Comboni missionaries, because uh, we were starting to feel very uncomfortable with the concept of a mission as a changing a people to more or less like, you know, what we thought it was uh, uh, the truth. Uh, uh, We we started to feel that first uh, you don't change people. People change when they decide to change. And if you go and encounter people uh, with uh, that sort of uh, hidden agenda, uh, how can you truly establish a relationship with uh, someone when your main purpose is to change them? You know, you just want to... Be able to have a mutual relationship where you can learn from them and they maybe can learn from you, but mostly enjoy the time together. So that started to change my understanding of what it was to be a missionary, what it was to be a Christian. Mm. It wasn't so much about, like, you know, changing other people.
0: Mm. That's fascinating. And <coughs> uh, since I'm presuming most of my projected audience are not people who are educated in the theological field or the religious professions. Would you say that your trajectory or your path of 17 years of, of, of training, is that fairly standard for a Catholic priest in terms of, of how one gets trained and how much time one spends?
1: Not anymore. Uh, you know, I don't think anywhere probably in the world the Catholic Church accepts uh, children in their uh, training and their formation. So usually people now join the seminary when they are uh, you know ready to go to college Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, so the five, six or maybe seven years before you know the ordination are the years in which one goes to the university, learns about theology, do some practice and then you know is ordained. But at that time uh, it was very normal for uh, children to live uh, their families and uh, joined the seminary. So when I joined the seminary in that house, uh, in that center, there were at least 150 other kids like me. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, sleeping in the same room with other 50 kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was fun. (laughs) Uh, Kids were like, you know, playing jokes uh <laughs> on everyone else we play a lot of soccer so my memories are, are truly you know beautiful of that period of time uh i know that uh probably now we know about other like you know shadow uh events uh, but my experience was really like you know very enjoyable experience uh, outstanding i would say I really had fun played a lot i learned because we were exposed to classical studies and uh we were in a very healthy environment, and so uh, it was wonderful. However, by, I think, like, you know, uh, 10 years after I joined the seminary, uh, minor vocations, said they w- as they were called, meaning children going to the seminary, you know, dropped, and uh, uh, probably, like, you know, together with the natality, Within uh, Italian families, so they closed the minor seminaries, and uh, whoever wanted to become a priest joined the seminary when they were like you know eighteen, nineteen years of age.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Um, and about what time period was that? That
1: was uh, towards like you know the end of the seventies, oh, okay. and uh, and and there was like you know big change at that time in Italy. Uh, when uh, I uh, joined the seminary. I would say that only a minority of uh, classmates would go after primary schools meaning like you know after eighth grade Mm. most would go to work after eighth grade Mm. Uh, and the work was there in the town Mm. whether it was like you know in the fields or like you know in some (coughs) factories Uh, after like you know the 70s people uh, You know, started to go to school and uh, pursue like university and uh, the economical situation was uh, much improved. uh, And uh, so uh, things changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to say that, you know, realistically for many families to send their child to uh, the seminary when I went, was also an opportunity to give uh, you know free education because in the seminary you know you didn't have to pay any tuition mm-hmm. you would be just there and uh, the missionaries would gather uh, donations uh, in order to support uh, the life within the seminary and uh, so at that time in Italy in my own uh, congregation which was like you know rather small more or less it had uh, around 1500 members there was an average of 30 ordination to priesthood each year. Mm. In the 90s, the number was down to two, three. Per year. Per year. Nowadays, it's like one every two, three, four years. Hmm. So, you know, there was uh, like an inversion of uh, attendance in, uh, you know, these uh, 30 years. And uh, now in Europe, you know, it's very difficult to have people who uh, want to become priests. Mm. Uh, very, very, very different. However, a lot of the numbers that still sustain uh, the numbers of priests uh, in the Catholic Church come from uh, Africa and from Asia, and uh, so the numbers sort of still stay the same, but uh, the ethnic background has changed. Mm.
0: The, I- if I recall correctly, um Pope Francis had made some comment recently about being open to the idea of married priests in the future, if I remember correctly, that, that it wasn't completely out of the question? Was yes, that,
1: uh, r- you know, the Pope sort of has to navigate between uh, uh, two shores, you know, uh, those who are against mm-hmm. and uh, those instead who are very much uh, in favor, you know. Uh, The Catholic Church, unity, it's a very important value. So uh, you always, on the part of the authority at least, want uh, to be prudent so that if you make a choice, uh, that is not going to break, you know, the the, the sort of communion. And so usually from authority, you hardly ever have uh, stance that uh, are uh, sort of very um, strong, Hmm. but on uh, the ground, you know, yeah, the voices are there, and uh, I would say that uh, the great majority are uh, in uh, favour of uh, leaving uh, the option for priests to either remain celibate and uh, or uh, to be married. Uh, the Pope has opened up to the possibility of eventually deacon mm-hmm. being uh, uh, open for women, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, it is true that uh, in uh, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, especially in the Orthodox tradition, uh, priests uh, can get married, and that uh, you know uh, avenue is uh, also recognized. Uh, definitely, this is a pope that is open to this idea. I'm sure he would be actually in favor. Mm. Uh, however, being uh, the representative of everyone. He wants. Uh, he has to move uh, much slower than uh, some parts of the world, like for instance, Europe and you know the states uh, would uh, want to.
0: Mm. And do you think that opening up that avenue for for non celibate priests, for married priests, will that help to increase the number of people who would go into the priesthood to be able to serve these large number of Catholics around the world?
1: I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, of course, it would change a, a, a lot of. Uh, uh, a, a lot of things, because, uh, for instance, uh, if you are a priest, uh, uh, somehow you don't have to worry about families mm. and uh, and uh, you know, uh, financially you are sustained by the diocese. Uh, it would change the whole economical mm. landscape once uh, you know families are on board. But uh, uh, if you take like you know the Protestant Protestant experience, you have lots of models that are uh, viable and that uh, uh, can happen. Uh, I was in Egypt for 10 years and uh, I have to say that I came to appreciate what uh, happens in uh, the Orthodox tradition over there, in the Coptic tradition, meaning that if you want to live a life of celibacy, you are a monk. And uh, uh, if you are a monk, therefore, you are sort of uh, less exposed uh, to the outside world uh, and to a lot of interactions uh, with people. Uh, That is sort of in agreement with my own experience because if you want to live a life of celibacy, you have to have a mental and physical environment that enables you to do that, meaning you have to be able to spend a long time in uh, prayer and silence. You have to be able to sort of uh, uh, cultivate a sensitivity that uh, truly uh, favors a sponsor Relationship with God, uh, uh, not just in a imaginary way, but in a very realistic way. That the time that you spend, uh, the time that you listen, uh, is extended. Uh, if you know you want to serve the Church, but not as a celibate, then you become a priest uh, in a parish. So in the Coptic tradition, monks in a monastery. They actually say that if you are a pastor, a priest in a parish, you have to be married. Mm. You cannot that's, be celibate.
0: That's the same in the Greek Orthodox tradition and I believe the Russian Orthodox tradition. So it's probably, as I understand, across the board in many of the Eastern Orthodox traditions. Yeah,
1: and, and again, like, I, I think that seems to be uh, more coincidental with my own experience. Once uh, you are uh, uh, overworking, and definitely priests nowadays are uh, uh, you know working more than they should mm. uh, because uh, there are less priests and they have to attend to more people and uh, people expect a priest to do everything that uh, uh, they needs often in times of uh, uh, tragedies you are emotionally depleted at times even spiritually depleted because uh, you don't have time. And whenever you have time, you're tired and you want to go to sleep. And uh, whenever they say there is another meeting, you feel almost like threatened (laughs) (laughs) for your own life. So truly, uh, it's not for everyone to sustain that life. Maybe some people can, but in my own experience, I have to say the majority of people struggle. Mm. And uh, so at a certain point, I would say the truth of what experience is saying has to be acknowledged and listened. So it's not uh, uh, to say that uh, celibacy is a bad thing. Uh, uh, I, I actually think that celibacy is a beautiful experience, but it requires a lot of time, care and attention. In the same way as if you are married to a person uh, you know, that uh, relationship is going to sustain you for the time, the quality of time, and uh, the attention that you dedicate to it, you know. And so the same is, uh, you know, in this relationship with uh, God.
0: Mm. That's so interesting. Um, so then in terms of a timeline, so you had you had spent 17 years in training prior to becoming a priest, and what, and, and so then you were in Chicago at the time where you took your vows,
1: I, I no In Chicago, I studied theology, and okay. it was a very interesting time, mm-hmm. because uh, it was in the 80s. Mm. I started my theological studies at Catholic Theological Union in uh, eight, uh, 1986, and uh, to me, it was uh, a wonderful experience of openness. And when I say that, it's because most of my teachers were women, mm. actually nuns. Mm. And I would say feminists. Mm. In Italy, feminists were all uh, people from uh, the left mm. parties, communists, mm-hmm. and anti ecclesiastical groups. Uh, instead, uh, here I found uh, I found uh, feminists uh, uh, represented by nuns.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they were a powerhouse from the point of view of theology, of uh, uh, studying, uh, uh, you know, the field of. The Bible and uh, social work uh, and so they expanded my understanding and uh, brought like you know the issue of gender. I remember that uh, in my very first paper I would address God as he and I would correct and put like uh, also she <laughs> and uh, and uh, at the beginning of course I couldn't really understand why that was so important mm. but I came to appreciate that and say like you know language shapes reality and so if you want reality to change you have to change the language that addresses it and uh, so they were very courageous women and uh, and not only that you know uh, they also uh, started to address the issue of gender you know and the rights of homosexual people in the church again at the beginning it was disconcerting but uh, then uh, I came uh, to not only appreciate that sensitivity. I came to recognize that at least in the western world that that was the topic, the issue that defined the mission of the church. Uh, what what I say is that unless you as a Christian are able to say that no matter what is your gender you are equally loved by God and you have equal access to all the richness of the church's uh, life and sacraments uh, or you are doing the same thing that happened like you know a hundred years ago when the issue was like you know integration of African American people Mm -hmm. and so to me it was uh, one of those issues in which uh, the confessing church had to speak the same way that for instance uh, at the time of uh, Bonhoeffer the church in Germany was like uh, divided in two groups uh, the orthodox uh, church that defended the status quo of at that time and the confessing church the church that had to say this is wrong it is unacceptable we cannot go along with this our faith is incoherent if we don't uh, uh, stand up and uh, so that was like you know something that i came really to see as uh, an uh, a, 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 an important uh, an important question i would say a question that reminded me very much of the struggle that uh, paul had to do in order to create sort of an inclusive community between Gentiles mm-hmm. and, 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 and Jewish people. Uh, I, I felt it was again being a dead topic though maybe like you know the representatives were different but the issue was just the same. And I have to say that the church struggled and still uh, struggles with this uh, issue, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, again when we say the church uh, we either understand like you know the hierarchy or we understand uh, the community at large and i think that the community at large is uh, you know much more uh, open than uh, eventually it seems to be represented it mm. represented
0: it mm. And so uh, so where did you go next after Chicago Then
1: uh, after Chicago uh, they asked me where I would want to go and I said Sudan. <laughs> and I said Sudan because uh uh Sudan is where the founder of my congregation uh Daniel Comboni uh, spent his life and his <coughs> mission. But uh, uh I spoke a little bit of Spanish. They were opening a little seminary in uh, uh um in California, and so they asked me if I was willing to train some seminarians, and uh, so I ended up in Azusa, mm. and uh, I started in a little uh, uh, a little seminar where there were like you know six or seven young people who were discerning their uh, vocation, mm. and uh, that's where I started like you know my life as a priest.
0: This would uh, have been, what, in the mid-80s, late 80s?
1: 1991. 91, okay. That's uh-huh. when I started, uh, and it was uh, during, uh, you know, in the first period of, uh, of uh, my life as a priest was uh, a, a wonderful time, meaning that uh, it was like, you know, I have so much to give, and there are so many needs, and I just jumped on it. It was after three, four years that I started to feel like, you know, I'm breathless. Uh, And this is, again, a very common experience, you know, because you are always on the go, and so I started like a homeless shelter, mm. and I was working in a parish, taking care for like you know Spanish-speaking people, and uh, there was like you know the seminary, and then I was in charge of like you know the finances of the seminary, and every time they would say, "Can you do it?" I would say, "Of course," <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, and then you know uh, I, I had to catch up, and then uh, so uh, it started to become like you know very 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 difficult, and. Uh, it was during that time that uh, I uh, I uh, said, okay, there's a lot of things, practical things that I have to do. I I, I want to go back, like you know, to a place that is safe, where sort of like you know, my mind, my brain can sort of like you know, be somewhere else, and that's where like you know, uh, Claremont came into place and the opportunity eventually to continue my studies, uh, and so that's when I began the PhD program. It was uh, about what, 95 or so? Uh, uh, it was about 96. Uh, 96. Uh, yeah. 95, 96. Uh, and, uh, and that's where I started, you know. And uh, so.
0: And for the audience, that's where uh, Giovanni and I first met each other at the Claremont Graduate University. At the time, it was still called Gra- Claremont Graduate School, CGS. It then changed to CGU for whatever reasons of marketing they felt it would be better to be called a university. And, um, and I remember. I was so impressed with your capacity with languages when we were in some seminar over in the Institute for Antiquity and Christianity, the IAC, probably in Jim Robinson's class. I remember you had your bible in spanish cuz you said that you just felt more comfortable reading in spanish and i thought but you're from italy what <laughs> is this and i was just amazed so here we are we're we're learning greek we're learning coptic whatever but your the the language that you the colloquial or the vernacular language that you'd want to read the bible in was in spanish i just thought it was fa- fantastic uh, uh, thank you thank <laughs> you yes
1: you know uh, again there's no better way to learn a language than when you have to because uh, you are in an environment in which that language is spoken and uh, so yes, language has uh, been uh, something that uh, kept, uh, you know, uh, expanding in my own experience. But uh, I have to say that uh, uh, Claremont was tr- again another uh, way in which my own sense of what religion, faith, is expanded. In uh, the previous uh, uh, studies at Clare at uh, C.G.U. in uh, Chicago. Uh, the main approach to the Bible was, uh, you know, the sociological, anthropological approach, sort of saying, let's try to understand the culture in which uh, Jesus grew, maybe there are like, you know, some interesting comparison within like, you know, Mediterranean society and let's see if we can use that to better understand the message mm-hmm. and to distinguish the message from some of uh, the anthropological connotations like honor and shame and uh, purity laws and all of those things. Instead when I came like, you know, to Claremont, there was this literary historical mm-hmm. approach and uh, uh, and, and, and you know i came truly to appreciate you know the new testament in that case uh, not just as the word of god but an incredible uh, uh, work of art and literature that was not uh, uh, you know developed in a sort of like you know a vacuum but uh, it was in dialogue with uh, the bigger world both history and literature of that time and uh, and that again expanded my own uh, understanding Because for the first time, I really felt that uh, I was not just uh, someone who was supposed to get direction from the Bible. I could actually enter into a a very fruitful uh, dialogue with it, in which my voice uh, was uh, dignified by uh, insights that had uh, their own legitimacy. And uh, again, I think at that point, uh, the relationship uh, was not anymore that of like you know parent to a child, but it was like you know between adults. Uh, mm. You know my faith and myself and my own experience, and uh, so that was like you know also something that uh, truly enriched uh, my life. Mm. And uh, so I studied over there, and uh, uh, and I stayed up to I think two thousand and uh, two or three. And then, uh, uh, when it was the time to write a dissertation? I left and went back to uh, Europe. However, uh, uh, before I did that, I did uh, take like you know two years of uh, leave of absence, as I am taking now. And I say this just uh, you know to be honest with the, the audience. Uh, uh, at that time, I think uh, my leave of absence, in which I said, okay. Uh, I need uh, to be on my own to figure out a few things. Uh, It was uh, again my own experience of becoming an adult. Uh, uh, It wasn't so much uh, that uh, what I had experienced before was bad, but uh, somehow it was like, you know, having a cloth that uh, was now too tight Mm -hmm. and and, uh, and it was before a choice. I could have just obeyed and do what I was supposed to, or I could be true to my conscience, to what my life was telling me at the moment, and uh, I, I chose to go for uh, uh, the second uh, path. And uh, I would say that that experience was uh, my true initiation, because uh, I went into a big crisis, and uh, the crisis was like you know me thinking I am a betraying. I am not living up to the expectations, uh, and uh, I truly felt, you know, I truly empathize what uh, to what people may feel when uh, something goes wrong in their life, and all of a sudden, instead of being part of a community, you feel like you are the outcast. You know, part of feeling an outcast was truly like you know my own self-judgment. It wasn't like you know people really rejecting me, but it was the way I assumed conventional <coughs> wisdom and applied it to myself, and it wasn't any more like you know s- satisfactory. And so I really went through like you know a, a time of big struggle. I would call it a liminal experience where you know what you leave, but you don't know yet what you're going to get, and so you are like in a sort of a neutral state which is a a state of uh, reconstruction, but uh, you don't know exactly what is going to happen, which is the best state in life. Meaning that uh, normally we are always trying to secure our certainties. Mm. And as powerful as our certainties are, often they become also the limit that prevents us from growing. And it's very difficult for a person to say, I'm going to let go of my certainties and wander into a land of uncertainty and insecurity. It's, it's very, very difficult. At times, it only happens if it breaks you down and you get lost. So that was happened to me. I didn't get lost when I was 15 years old, an adolescent. It happened when I was uh, around the age of uh, uh, 30. Mm. And uh, so I was lost for 2-3 years, knowing what I was leaving, not knowing what I was going to get, but that was a wonderful experience because, for instance, uh, during that time it was very hard for me to go to a Catholic church mm. because I really felt I don't belong here. Mm. And yet uh, my crisis was not a a, a, a faith crisis. Uh, I, I sought God as I sought God before and felt loved by God as I felt loved by God before, but I wanted still to celebrate that within a community. And so I started to go to other churches, Mm. uh, all sorts of churches. And again, what uh, I found is that me, the one who was supposed to change, was changed by this encounter Mm -hmm. because I found wonderful people in every church with peculiar differences. And then I started to realize one thing. Why, if we share so much, we walk Parallel roads that hardly ever cross. They may be crossed when there are these ecumenical weeks. But we basically walk in with our own agenda, never really like, you know, sharing it with others. And then I really felt like, you know, am I part of a tribe? Is the Catholic Church a tribal experience of God? And uh, we are all belonging to different tribes. And so I felt like, you know, no in conscience i cannot uh, uh, adopt that as like you know uh, the path i want for my life from that experience came the decision to go into egypt i wanted to experience what it felt to be a minority mm-hmm. as a christian in a majority uh, uh, muslim country and uh, i wanted uh, you know to see the other point of view and uh, and so i you know reconnected with the Kobani missionaries and uh, then uh, was assigned uh, to Egypt and uh, I went over there and that was uh, approximately the year 2007
0: now from what i recall you had already finished your phd right or or no my,
1: my p- yes uh, i i went to egypt at the beginning of the year 2007 i i spent one year in austria to write the dissertation ah, okay. uh, again i struggled towards the end of my academic uh, process, mostly because emotionally I was really struggling. I remember being in the library, and I'm not just saying for weeks, I can say for months, if not years, walking around the library just to find a sense of peace that I could open a book and concentrate. Mm. I also have to say that I loved libraries because over there nobody cared about me. There was silence, books were there, looking at me, inviting me (laughs) to read. I really felt like, you know, a safe space Mm -hmm. in the libraries. But at times, it was very difficult to calm my own mind and my own emotions. And uh, so I struggled towards the end. But uh, again, many people were saying to me at that time, you know, why bother? You know, you're a Catholic priest, you don't need it. But uh, there was that principle of saying, I started something, I want to go to the end of it, also because I really felt uh, that wasn't just like, you know, a degree what was uh, a sort of pressuring me, it was mostly really like, you know, a research mm-hmm. that I had to come to a conclusion. And so I also realized that the only way for me to be able to do that it was to drop everything else and to just like, you know, stay for one year, me and the dissertation. And It was a wonderful experience, in which sense... It was uh, a wonderful experience. I would call it the art of thinking. Mm. What I mean that is most of the time we tend to repeat opinions, of what people say or what we have heard, to be able to create your own thoughts and develop them in a coherent way. And to do it in a disciplined way in which you say, this is a very good thought, but doesn't belong here go away, cut it, trash it, and stay on topic, make it like, you know, reasonable, understandable. It's really like, you know, an interior discipline that uh, cannot happen just by chance. You really have to dedicate time to it. But it was wonderful to be able to say, I not only understand, I feel I'm on the edge of this topic. I can push it farther and I know why and how to explain that. That was really like, you know, incredible. That was like, you know, the gift of this, you know, academic process, not so much necessarily the degree, which actually was also a gift because it allows me to be here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention
0: that. (laughs) I mean, the way that your life has changed and transformed, especially while you are still on a leave of absence, it's crucial that you have that PhD. Yes. Because you're now earning a living as a professor and it's kind of required to have that PhD to really go somewhere as a professor.
1: (laughs) Yes, and, uh, (laughs) you know, if there is, like, a uh, a, a, a wisdom in this is truly, even if you do not understand, always finish what you have started, yeah. you know, truly. Don't uh, make a judgment just based on the immediate <coughs> emotions that you have. Be, you know, able to see, like, you know, the larger scope. So anyway, uh, I went uh, to uh, to Egypt and there uh, for a couple of years I... Uh, I studied Arabic, but before that, uh, I, I I I had this incredible experience because I didn't explain how, if you were in a leave of absence, you joined again. You know the Comboni missions because truly, I was not planning to. Mm. I I I really thought like uh, uh, this is it. Not so much against uh, them, but uh, I I really felt like you know the world is so much bigger and. Uh, uh i i i want to continue now i'm gonna backtrack like a few years before there was a classmate of mine by the name of Giorgio fiorini uh who was killed in uh, mozambique towards the end of uh, uh, the civil war that uh, you know blooded that country for like you know at least uh, three decades and uh, he was killed and uh, his uh, funeral was celebrated. His body was brought back to Italy and was actually buried in a church. And uh, I never had the chance because I was in the States to go and uh, pay my own uh, respects to his tomb. And uh, while I was back in Italy, during that time, I went to the city of Terracina close to Rome And uh, I went to the church. The church was closed. It was a little bit of an adventure Mm -hmm. because uh, the church was closed. Then somebody passed by, asked me, like, you know, do you need anything? And I said, uh, uh, I need, uh, you know, to go and visit, like, you know, the tomb of Alfredo. Well, the priest is not here. And as he's saying that, the priest appears. He opens uh, (laughs) uh, the the, the church. And uh, so uh, I am there kneeling in front of the stone, you know, I, under which his body is buried inside the church, and uh, as I'm kneeling, I'm saying to Alfredo, uh, Alfredo, really, I am sort of like you know in between roads. Help me to understand what I should do. You know, let me know. At that for at that exact moment, my cellular phone rang, and it was a priest in Uganda who said, "Would you like to come over here and give us?" You know a workshop mm-hmm. i mm. just finished to say give me a sign <laughs> 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 and that's when i said okay and so i went to uganda and i stayed there and i worked over there and that's what sort of like you know reconnected me with the Comboni missions and that is also where i truly had incredible experiences of, of what it means to be on the front line because uh there was uh, a, 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 a at that time in the northern part of Uganda, the Lord's Liberation, Liberation Army with uh, Joseph Kony, who was like you know a rebel who would abduct children and uh, force them to commit uh, uh, terrible uh, uh, acts of uh, violence against their own families. and uh, So I remember like for instance, taking a plane mm-hmm. uh, to go into the mission, which was surrounded by the rebels. And so it was not possible to go through the road and having like, you know, people from the ground shooting at the airport Mm -hmm. as we were (laughs) flying, Uh, you know, in uh, these experiences, uh, again, I came to understand what it means like, you know, to surrender. Uh, Surrender is not just like a pious act. It's an act of survival. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that uh, if you are in a situation where your life is threatened, uh, unless you're able to surrender your life in the hands of someone who you, you trust, in my case, like you know, the benevolent God, you're always going to run for your life. You're always going to be like afraid. You're always going to be paranoid about everything that happens around you, for you to be able to let go. Of it, you have to sort of place your life in the hands of the others, and that can only be happening in a real situation. You cannot sort of imagine that. You have to be in that place, and uh, so I, 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 I have the memory of uh, these uh, long lines of children that every night would come to the mission to find safety because. Uh, You know, this uh, uh, rebel group would go into their villages otherwise and get them during the night. And uh, I remember, you know, children singing, you know, with all their strength to invoke God's help. And uh, you are in the middle of Africa and uh, you come from a world where, uh, you know, problems are, uh, you know, little problems seem to be like, you know, huge problems. It changes, like you know, the sense of proportions of things. Again, what changes you is experience. Uh, it's not just like you know, abstract ideas. And uh, if you want your life to be changed, in a sense, uh, you have to let yourself be exposed uh, to the different uh, chemicals of uh, experience, yeah. especially the one that you maybe are unfamiliar with. And uh, that is uh, what happened. In uh, in that uh, situation, I remember driving at night uh, and uh, repeating uh, you know, some of the sounds, uh, and finding uh, an incredible sense of safety within, even though maybe the day before somebody was killed on that same road, uh, and uh, and again was a part of that internal journey uh, that. Uh, brought me to grapple with uh, what I consider really the main issue of our human experience, which is violence. Uh, Violence is uh, the world in which we live. It's everywhere within the Church, within society, among nations. Uh, Unless you have an answer to what violence does to us or what you do through violence to others. Truly, is impossible to come to say my faith is meaningful. Mm. Uh, so, uh, being at both par- side of of that, you know, was uh, was what brought this issue central, you know, to my own growth, both as a human being and as Christian.
0: Mm. And once again, what year was that that you were in uh, in Uganda?
1: I, I was in Uganda in uh, two ta- When I left. Uh, when I left uh, uh, the States, uh, I was in Italy for one year uh, or, or or eight months. And uh, then is when I received that telephone call in uh, Terracina, and then I moved to Uganda. After a period over there, I said, I'm going to finish this dissertation. Oh, and then that's and when I went, went to Austria. Austria. Oh, okay. And then from Austria, I went to Egypt in 2007.
0: Okay, I see, I see. Yeah, because I know you and I had stayed in touch by email yes. and then occasional Skype, but I wasn't sure where that all fit in with the, the trajectory of your adventures. Yes. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I have a really great memory of of uh, being on Skype with you when you were in Egypt. And yes. this must have been about, what, 2008, 2009, somewhere yes. in that range? Because I, I know I was already married. Melissa was in the house with me, and I remember she sort of, uh, sort of stuck her head into the into the monitor and said hello to you. Not only you that,
1: but <laughs> at a certain point, I remember her dancing her way through the monitor from one <laughs> side to <laughs> the other, and I said, "Oh, this is a fun, <laughs> fun person. I <laughs> wish one day I'd f- to meet her." i forgotten about that. I <laughs> did. <Yeah. laughs> yes, yes. She was going like you know, dancing and <laughs> choreographing, like you know. <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I've always been so. Proud and grateful to know you. You just you you bring so many interesting experiences to the table and 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 I'm so glad that you told the story about Uganda because I remember you telling it to me shortly after it happened and I remember thinking, My God, this guy's like the Apostle Paul being <laughs> let down out in a basket from a second story window to <laughs> escape harm. And I just thought, wow, the amazing adventures that you're having. But it's not just for the sake of adventure for being an explorer, it's the fact that this is I guess you'd say the occupational hazards of being a priest and being a person who steps outside of his comfort zone to help people to, yes. to serve humanity. And I thought, wow, yeah. this is an amazing human yeah. being.
1: I actually, well, well, thank you. <laughs> I I I know both sides. You know <laughs> the shadow and the light. <laughs> and I have to say that uh, if a light has taught me something, is to be humble and uh, to be true to you know the path that I'm walking. I I can, I know, I have more failures than successes and uh, the great uh, experience is to come to realize that uh, what we call uh, failures are actually, you know, the steps through which your life uh, grows, you know, success sort of keep you stuck somewhere. And uh, so uh, I am I, 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 truly humbled by my own failures uh, and uh, so, but yes, it was like, you know, uh, a, a wonderful experience. I have to say that uh, I never loved the clerical part of being a priest. I don't think you've probably ever even seen me dressed with a clergy or anything like have. that. No. Yes, <laughs> uh, that wasn't really the reason why I became a priest. Actually, I would not have become a priest uh, if it wasn't because uh, these original missionaries showed me pictures of uh, the forest uh, and uh, the adventure mm. and uh, the poor kids. I, I really felt like, you know, that I wanted to help. And uh, the way I could do it in a society that didn't have many nonprofit profit organizations and that uh, really the only people who would go to these places were really like, you know, missionaries. Uh, I felt, you know, that's the avenue that I'm going to take. Uh, but i always felt uncomfortable i have to say to be on a status that almost uh, brought people to i don't say worship but you know venerate me yeah. venerate. i always felt like you know wait a second uh I, 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 are you talking about the father you're talking about the person i really want to be treated as a person not titles uh and again i'm not saying this against those who feel comfort in their titles or even in that life. Uh, I, I find that there is a space for everyone, but that was not my space. Mm. I always felt that you know I wanted to be known for the person that I am and that uh, whatever value is uh, present in my life is the value of my humanity as I can find it also related into the life of others. And uh, so, yes, that is uh, uh, the reason... I I, I think that, uh, uh, I'm saying this truly in a non-judgmental way, Uh, I I, I truly feel that uh, I enjoy people with all the range of their own beliefs. I don't feel threatened by people who think differently from me. I'm actually feeling uh, that my life is greater when uh, somehow I m- enable people to be who they want uh, to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that doesn't prevent me from being the person that I want to be. Uh, freedom is uh, a, an incredible uh, you know, gift, but uh, it comes with a price, as they say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then... After Egypt, so well, that I stayed
1: there in yeah. Egypt, and again in Egypt, I had uh, the experience of the before, during, and after the revolution. Oh yeah, had which was like again uh, one incredible experience when uh, you find people who are obviously oppressed uh, in, in so many different ways. You know, never really like you know, light and darkness are into these separate corners are always a little bit mixed. But you know, they were oppressed, and finally. A voice that was repressed for decades, under the fear of violence and and and, and poverty and injustice, found an outlet. And so to have to be part of a million people in a square screaming, "We want freedom!" Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, incredible, truly incredible uh, to find that no matter what, uh, that desire for freedom and equality is not just something that government gives to people. It's really what people give to government. Mm. Uh, It is truly into the soul of human beings and nothing can uh, kill uh, or uh, repress that. We may lose it, but uh, it's always going to come back. And uh, so uh, it was an incredible experience, and it was, of course, again an experience that made me face, you know, the uh, the the nature of uh, violence. Uh, it was uh, while I was in Egypt that uh, I came to a sort of radical choice, I would say, and again, I didn't come to that choice from Anna sort of abstract point of view, it was uh, again a choice that came uh, from survival almost. I decided to say no more enemies, Mm. no more enemies in my life. What I mean is that in order for me to promote something, I don't have to destroy somebody else or something else. And uh, I will be out of that thinking that is either or. Uh, And when I say no more enemies is that, you know, My agenda is not set up by those who maybe disagree with me. My agenda is set up by the things that I feel are worthwhile. And so I can uh, truly allow people who maybe disagree or do not like me to be themselves. I'm actually happy to say, be who you choose to be. You don't have to like me. You don't have to disagree with me. You are not my enemy. Even though you may think that I am an enemy to you, it takes two to fight. I'm taking out myself from that fight. And uh, so uh, I, I I started to free myself, and I'm still in that process, uh, uh, of all sorts of uh, fires that nurture violence within uh, myself and in my relationships. Uh, I I, I do think that whenever we have experienced uh, violence in our lives, the virus is set inside us and only a healing, a conscious healing, can bring you back to that original state of blessedness, which uh, is meant for us as uh, human beings and which is really the gift that uh, Jesus uh, brought uh, to us, Uh, to me, uh, if I have to say, what is the most important and maybe even only message that Jesus brought is uh, truly a message of non-violence. When uh, Paul says, and he died and he died on a cross, the cross does not only represent the nature of the violent world that killed him, The cross represented his refusal to use uh, violence in order to save himself. His refusal to use violence in order to defeat those who were trying to kill him in order to impose his own ideas. Uh, And uh, and, uh, and, and, and his uh, way was vindicated. His way prevailed even over the power of violence. That, to me, is the core message of Jesus Christ. And if this core message is not the center, of any Christian church, it is a betrayal. I truly say that. Now, I don't judge the people, but I truly say it is a betrayal from what really Jesus wanted to convey, not only through His Word, but through His own life. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, depose the weapons. Uh, Do not antagonize people, do not judge people do not do violence on others. Allow them to walk through their own path. Be eager to follow what you think is worth while your own sacrifice." Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so, yes, that is uh, something that, uh, again, while I was there in Egypt during the time of the revolution, I felt this is
0: the choice. Mm So, I, I mean, this is probably a whole topic in and of yeah. itself, but how do you feel that the revolution has, has turned out? I mean, do you think that it has, has accomplished its goals, or does it still have far to go? I mean, from what I understand, there is a lot of problems still yes. in Egypt, a lot of problems.
1: Whatever <laughs> advance happened in the very first uh, e- few years, maybe a couple of years, it, all, it is all lost. Mm. The only thing that remains... Is that once you taste the flavor yeah. of freedom, you can never go back. Yeah. Governments may bring restrictions of all s- s- types, but uh, it is impossible. I, it's like you know trying uh, to hold on uh, the water of uh, the ocean with your own hands. You know you really can't. Um, how unfortunately, however, as uh, often uh, the attempt of uh, constrain the freedom of uh, people happens, you know, a lot of violence takes place and this is what is happening now in Egypt. In mm. Egypt now there is uh, a lot of uh, violence and uh, violence justified under the threat uh, uh, of, of terrorism, which of course is also present, uh, but it becomes at times also an opportunity to bring stronger restrictions for the advantage of whoever is in power mm. at that moment. and. Uh, you know, violence is always, you know, aimed at protecting the East, the interest of a part versus another. And so there are huge interests uh, in uh, a part of Egypt, uh, you know, to protect their own interest, their status quo uh, versus the majority. And again, I don't say this against, uh, uh, you know, the country or the people of Egypt. I am very grateful for that experience. Wonderful people you know wonderful experiences that i have that i think that is a nation that uh, uh needs its own path in order to to grow i'm not saying that here in the west uh, we are the model necessarily f- and for sure if we are a model for us that doesn't mean necessarily that, that model is you know equally applicable to countries of a very different uh, culture and, uh, and history. So each will have to find uh, their own way of, uh, of uh, you know, developing, uh, you know, a government that is representative uh, of people, but at the same time respectful of their own cultural and uh, religious tradition. And so it's gonna take, you know, the time, but I'm very confident that they will be able to achieve it.
0: Yeah. I remember at the time, I guess it must have been after Mubarak was was deposed and the various forms of provisional and military junta governments were were coalescing at the time. Uh I remember hearing about uh the military court sentencing hundreds and hundreds of people to death who were just essentially innocent civilians who may have been seen protesting, who are, who may have spoken out against the government. And, and I remember one photo in the New York Times, I saved the photo on my computer, but it's seared in my brain of uh, uh, several people in some kind of a makeshift temporary um, uh, police holding area, just several civilians sitting there on the ground crying and the photo supposedly represented those who had just received these, what essentially were death sentences. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy, one older man, probably in his, maybe in his 60s or 70s, in the foreground of the photo, with his head in his hands, just crying bitterly, and... uh and it, on some level, reminded me of my own father. And at this point in time, my parents were both declining. And I was thinking, here's a man who has just received a death sentence, and and he looks like my father on some level, who also was dealing with, with um, the issue of, of of deadly illnesses. But I, I had so much compassion, and 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 angst for this man, whoever this was. They didn't even give a, a name of the guy in the caption, but I've always wondered to this day what happened to him, because from what I recall, many of the death sentences were not carried out, some were, but it was just, what a big fiasco there, that all these people who didn't necessarily commit any real crimes, but were prisoners of conscience, receiving these summary death sentences by this new and perhaps even more oppressive government. Uh, anyway, that, that was just a, a little yeah. anecdote. No, it that was, I,
1: again, you know, uh, once uh, you adopt violence as a way to resolve uh, conflicts and problems, uh, you know all these things are going to happen. And yes, I myself I witnessed uh, terrible uh, abuses uh, towards uh, people, and uh, truly, uh, I have to say that uh, uh, that uh, I- I- it is disheartening you know it's it's fearful, but at the same time you find incredible uh, testimonies of uh, courage uh, and uh, and even in uh, the midst of that uh, fire uh, you find uh, acts of kindness and uh, solidarity and uh, again, on behalf of you know the wonderful experiences that I've had over uh, I have to say that uh, even during the revolution. Uh, I could walk you know, through the streets of Cairo, probably safer at night. And, uh, it would happen if I walk in some streets of Los Angeles or really? Chicago at night. <laughs> Again, I'm saying this because first there are no weapons. Mm. So when they fight they use uh, stones mm. and that makes a big huge difference. Mm. Of course alcohol is not allowed so there are no people under the influence of drugs. So uh, and they have <coughs> like you know very traditional values of respect towards uh, foreigners and uh, uh, hospitality to those uh, who pass by. So I have to say that uh, I, I've never felt really threatened for my life. I watched terrible things happen to them, but uh, 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 you know the revolution was not so widespread everywhere. Mm. It was localized, and where it wasn't happening. Life was sort of carried as uh, normal and uh, so uh again uh television presents you know the sort of spectacular mm-hmm. uh aspect of uh, uh you know the event. Once you are there you actually see, you know, all the shades that are uh, taking place but it's undeniable that terrible abuses took place and are still taking place and there was uh, one of uh, Giulio Regeni, and if I could make an appeal uh, you can google the name Ju- Ju- Giulio Regeni. was a young man that used to come even to the center where I was working who was then abducted, tortured, terribly tortured and killed and still now after I think uh, two years of his death uh, uh No one has been brought to justice, and uh, it was done by the secret services. And, uh, you know, there is a, I would say, international appeal for uh, justice to happen in the case of this uh, wonderful
0: young man, Giulio Reggiani, yes. And he was a foreign national? I mean, I guess it sounds like uh,
1: an Italian name. he was an Italian Uh. from studying in Cambridge, Uh, and uh, he was studying... uh, you know the impact of uh, labor unions, and uh, uh, at a certain point, maybe he was uh, taught to be a spy, and uh, he was abducted, tortured in a terrible, terrible way. The parents, when they came to, you know, recognize the body, couldn't even recognize him. Truly terrible, and uh, uh, and 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 then you know, killed and abandoned on the side of a road, and naked, just. Uh, to induce people to think that he was the victim of a sort of sexual uh, uh, game gone uh, wrong and you know terrible humiliating and uh, and uh, so uh, he has become a sort of uh, uh, a, a, an inspiration not just for some uh, people who knew him but for so many to say you know justice has to happen or and, and that. You know, to, to secure that even during time of violence those type of abuses uh, do not take place
0: mm. yeah well thank you for mentioning him um, may God rest his soul and may we see justice yes in the not too far flung future yes yeah wow Um. so then so you were in Egypt for how long a couple for of years 10 years T- 10 years yeah oh I didn't realize it was that long my goodness wow yeah. <laughs> How time flies. <laughs> no,
1: actually, it was, sorry, it was nine years. Nine so years. Nine years. Still uh, yeah.
0: Wow, I didn't realize. My goodness. Okay, and so then you came back to the U.S. How many years ago was it?
1: Uh, it was like, you know, I think a couple of years ago I went, I came, I went back. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, but, yes, yeah, stable uh, was uh, uh, from uh, 2016.
0: Uh, okay, right. Okay and then you've been pursuing all sorts of interesting things since then. Yes,
1: uh, <laughs> while I was in Egypt uh, I you know, uh, bought with a friend uh, a piece of land in the desert among the Bedouins and uh, we had this project for refugees to bring them over and to learn some agricultural skill also in the field of renewable energies because of course you are in the desert uh, and you don't have electricity, and uh, you need the water. How do you pump the water from a well uh, well with solar panels and all of that? And uh, as I started to work in the land, I felt an incredible enthusiasm. I sort of reconnected with my origins. I come from an agricultural family, uh, farmers. Mm. So I had chickens, I had uh, cows, uh, you know, I, I I I love that part. I actually, at a certain point, even when I was in the seminary, instead of studying classical studies, I asked my superior if I want if I could study, uh, you know, agriculture, you know, agronomy mm-hmm. and veterinary. And they mm-hmm. said, uh, well, uh <laughs> I don't know if that is going to be compatible with the study of the Bible. <laughs> so anyway. So I felt like, you know, an incredible enthusiasm just being there on the land. And uh, that experience made me realize one thing. Uh, You know, you may work to change people. And uh, maybe people may even change. But if you don't change the environment in which people live, they're going to go back and get sick. But that was also applicable to myself. I may try to be a better self but if the environment in which I live, the ecology of my life is toxic, I will keep going getting sick. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- what I mean is that, you know, the improvement of your life is not just generated by your own effort. It's generated by the environment in which your own life is situated. And, uh, so, I came to understand that mission was really about like, you know, environment. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, once you give like a healthy environment to a context people on their own strive for the better but if they are in a toxic environment they you know there's not going to be ascent there's always going to be descent mm-hmm. descent to like you know the worst part because it's toxic because it's like you know uh, mortifying and uh, so i said okay i need to make a bigger investment not only from a practical point of view but even from a theological point of view about the understanding of what it means like you know ecology and how that relates to everything that is connected and uh, so I started to live over there in the bedouin land mm-hmm. and I started to work the land and uh, a- at that point I realized I needed to spend more time uh, and know about, you could say, like, you know, what is sustainable, uh, both ec- in the in terms of, like, you know, nature, in terms of economy, in terms of construction, you know, the whole environment. And uh, so I came back and I joined a nonprofit organization called the Greed Alternatives, mm-hmm. a wonderful organization. Uh, who has trained me uh, to be you know able to install Mm -hmm. uh, solar panels study how uh, you know solar energy works and uh, is uh, applicable and uh, so as uh, i came to the states i've been uh, constantly learning about this at the moment i'm uh, taking a class on permaculture Mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully uh, I'm getting started with a little non-profit organization that has exactly, you know, as a core element uh, that of uh, agriculture and art as well, but agriculture, the two are actually related, and, uh, uh, and hopefully uh, I will uh, be able to uh, return mostly to Africa and uh, be able to sort of share knowledge resources uh, in this uh, field.
0: It's mm. fascinating. Um, the um, the one one of the things that I did want to uh, talk a little bit further about, and it's it's not related to what you were just mentioning. So forgive me for skipping around. But um, you had earlier talked about some of the. Uh, masculine pronouns for God and uh, using masculine metaphors for God. And I know recently I'd asked your your opinion uh, about something that I had read in uh, in the news about a particular uh, diocese of the Episcopal Church in Washington D.C. that had voted to begin to remove male pronouns and masculine imagery from their future versions of their Book of Common Prayer. And I know that since you regularly attend an Episcopal church, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on uh, this kind of trend, uh, particularly in relation to what you had mentioned about some of the the nuns who had who had taught you back in Chicago to be more aware of our somewhat indiscriminate usage of of very. Hardline gendered pronouns for God. What are your thoughts on that in terms of where things are going, either in the Episcopal Church or in the Catholic Church or any other denomination of Christianity?
1: Well, uh, I, I think that uh, progressively there's going to be an awareness of how language shapes our own sense of uh, reality. Mm. And uh, therefore, we are not going to wage a war against uh, the uh, masculine uh, uh, pronoun in uh, reference to God but we're going to say can we use uh, you know a plurality of images mm. because uh, God is not just uh, a father and for sure the art of the images of God portray him as a father but uh, we can portray her also as a mother mm. as a friend as a lover mm. uh, and, uh, and 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 those examples are also present uh, within scripture uh, themselves uh, so uh, I again i feel that uh, Uh, a lot of, uh, in a certain sense, I would say, like uh, uh, the use of uh, violence as uh, a way to uh, create peace uh, comes from uh, that uh, patriarchal uh, 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 um, uh, male-oriented culture, which uh, often... Uses uh, uh, strength and violence as a symbol for uh, manlihood. Mm. And uh, so uh, it is an all area that, uh, I- I in a way, uh, is representative of what's going on within uh, a society. And uh, for that reason, also the resistance to a change, because it's not just the change of a pronoun, it's truly really the change of uh, a, a, a way of being human. Uh, uh, and uh and but uh, especially uh, here you know in uh, uh, the United States which often is on the forefront of issues meaning that you know the edge of issues are first met over here in the states and then uh, they are passed on to other nations has always been like, you know, my impression. So yeah. you have to give credit to this country for facing for the first time issues. For instance, if you take issues of gender mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so uh, in so many ways, you know, this country is uh, decades sort of farther than what maybe like, you know, is uh, happening in other uh, countries but other countries will benefit from this struggle and this is a great gift that uh, you know this country is giving but uh, yes uh, i I find that more and more the issue of gender uh, will uh, be central to the self-identity of uh, you know our own uh, churches and uh, the faith that we uh, profess uh, I I I, w- I remember when I was studying uh, for my dissertation that I went through like you know some ideas that were saying it's impossible to change a society unless you're also changing the theology that sustains that society and that legitimates that society. Mm. There is no political, economical change that can happen unless uh, sort of like you know the larger. Theological background that sustains and supports it and gives legitimacy is also addressed, Mm. Uh, and so, in a way, if you want a just world, okay, be willing to change, you know, what we understand about God, Mm. Uh, and uh, so I I, I do think that you know, uh, it's not just about pronouns; it's really about you know a plurality of identities that. sort of uh, give expression to the uncommensurable richness of who god uh, is you know god is uh, i you know I- it's representative of male female transgender homosexual o- o- all of that hmm. all of that
0: yeah um I'm particularly interested in the issue of redefining masculinity in the modern world, and uh, a couple of times in the episodes that I've recorded on my own over the last several weeks, I've touched on some of those issues. So I, I find it really, um, you know, really kind of heartening and edifying to hear you talk about the, um, the 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 sort of the stereotypical understanding of masculinity being rooted in violence and aggression, um, and our ability to move beyond that.
1: Um. Yes, I, I, I think that uh, in a society that is so much aware on, uh, you know, the problem of women being uh, uh, abused by men, offer what goes uh, uh, undetected is uh, how a male identity is actually the wounded one. Mm. How much is needed, you know, a, a, a therapy for uh, men that uh, you know are constrained within uh, an identity that ultimately is not giving uh, us a, a life, uh, and uh, and 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 it keeps us like you know uh, wounded, and uh, in a way, I, I truly say that if you want, you know, a a, a world that, uh, you know, is most respectful for the rights of women, you have to work on uh, what it means to be a man and how the concept of uh, manhood is generated within uh, uh, our own culture. Uh, so, yes, I, I commend you for addressing this uh, uh, topic. <laughs> is again um, for, uh, a topic that is very controversial uh, and uh, so uh, when... Uh, you know, a dialogue opens up on this issue uh, is very important to be considerate, meaning that those who do not agree on this issue is not that they are less or uh, that uh, they are wrong necessarily. But uh, as long as a dialogue remains open, that's really what we have to aim. And uh, so uh, I I hope that, uh, you know, we will do all we can in order to further you know the progression in this uh, uh, aspect
0: mm. yeah so uh you know we've we've talked for quite a long time and i appreciate your generosity oh, thank of you. time oh, thank and you. i okay. could just keep going on forever i mean i've just gotten so much out of this and i would have individu- so many questions for you oh. too you know? well if you're willing Let's revisit this at another time, and you know, uh, is there anything in closing, maybe in the next minute or so, a couple of minutes, that you wanted to share or talk about, at least that would be included in this episode, before we close up SHOT for today?
1: Uh, Well, uh, I, as I sort of look backward, you know, in my life, and, uh, you know, I'm now 54, Mm. and uh, I try to see, you know, what is uh, really uh, valuable, uh, I I would truly say that uh, uh, faith as uh, the capacity to sort of entrust your life in the hands uh, of God uh, is, uh, you know, the greatest uh, uh, choice that uh, allows me and allowed me to progress into worlds that were unknown and uh, uh, insecurities that uh, transformed me and even uh, uh, compassion for uh, my own uh, failures and uh, failures of others around me. So, I I truly say that uh, uh, faith is uh, uh, the engine. Uh, uh, And when I say faith, I truly mean eternal life not as a reward uh, after this life, but uh, as a recognition that, uh, you know, with faith, eternity
0: is already part of our present. Hmm. That's interesting, because w- my class that I'm currently teaching on Fridays has to do with the Gospel of John, and we talk a lot about that in the Gospel of John 3.36, whoever believes in me has eternal life now. I mean, I'm augmenting the translation of that to kind of highlight that notion of, of present that you yes. were just talking about, the present eternal life now in the present. And that's so it's so evident in the Gospel of John. And it's I think it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for me to understand how can we have eternal life now well, before uh, we're even dead.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, 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 that's exactly uh, the point. Uh, you know, again, once you are faced with the threat of violence, death becomes real. And the quality of your answer to that threat becomes like, you know, the transformative experience of your own life and what you choose in your own life. So I truly feel that unless you're able to reconcile yourself with the fact that we are going to die uh, and that uh, death is only a transition, it's never an end, you know, you then can look forward. Mm. I, I wish myself be able to look forward to my death. Mm. Truly to look forward, because death is not, you know, the end, but is a door that opens to fulfillment and completeness. Paul even says, I wish I could be already gone now. (laughs) 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 But I know that I still have to do things over here. You know, once you stop fearing death, then uh, life becomes so much more enjoyable. Mm. And the only way you can sort of defeat the power of death is, as Jesus says, you know, try not to save your life mm. because the one who tries to save it will lose it. Yeah.
0: I know I'm not there yet. I know I'm not there yet. And that's going to be a while before I'm able to accomplish that shift in consciousness because I think I still dread my death partly because I know I've done nothing yet. Compared to what I know, I want to do when I what I have the capacity to you do have so much energy. <laughs> 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 it's responsibility. <laughs> Worry about that when you're 180. Okay, yeah, <laughs> at that point. But for now, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine by me. <laughs> I'd like to live to about 100, about 200. <laughs> yeah. Um. So anyway, in the in the interest of uh, of our our audience, wherever they are, whether they're driving to work or whatever, we'll we'll let them. Uh, Uh, close-up shop for today. And I just want to thank you so much for being here. I've enjoyed this so immensely, and I want to do it again. Yes. And um, so meanwhile, so let's all thank uh, Father Giovanni Esti, and um, we'll have him on again soon. And this is the Dr. Eric Greenberg Show. Uh, Closing up, have a wonderful evening, and God bless you.